You're listening to episode number 52 of the Keto Diet Podcast. Today we're chatting about things that affect insulin sensitivity outside of diet, metabolic markers for brain health, the effect that a constant state of ketosis has on brain health, and so much more. So stay tuned. Hey, I'm Leanne from HealthfulPursuit.com, and this is the Keto Diet Podcast, where we're busting through the restrictive mentality of a traditional ketogenic diet to uncover the life you crave. What's keto? Keto is a low-carb, high-fat diet where we're switching from a sugar-burning state to becoming fat-burning machines. All listeners of the podcast receive a free seven-day keto meal plan, complete with a shopping list and everything you need to chow down on keto for seven whole days. Download your free copy at healthfulpursuit.com forward slash keto meal. The link will also be in the show notes for today's episode. Perfect if your daily keto meals have become a bit lackluster, if you're new to keto and a bit lost when it comes to eating what and how much, or thrive on being guided on what to do and when to do it. Again, that's healthfulpursuit.com forward slash keto meal. Let's get this party started. Hey guys, happy Sunday. The show notes and full transcript for today's episode can be found at healthfulpursuit.com forward slash podcast forward slash E52. The transcript is added to the post about three to five days following the initial air date of this episode. And let's hear from one of our awesome partners. Guys, if you're like me and you try a bottle of MCT oil and you pour just a little bit in your coffee and all of a sudden the MCT oil is not only all over your hands but also all over the blender and all over your cabinets and you're wondering what the heck happened or if you've tried MCT oil in the past and then you have a disaster pant situation and you're running to the bathroom at work which is so so embarrassing, I've got a perfect solution for you and it is called MCT oil powder. You just add it to your drink, it becomes all creamy and delicious, it doesn't make a mess, and better yet, you're not running to the bathroom every time you use it. It's a super simple hack, but one that I promise is going to absolutely revolutionize your relationship to MCTs. Many people who've given up on MCT oil aren't even aware that another option exists. But not all MCT oil powders are created equal. My personal favorite is MCT oil powder from Perfect Keto, made of only 100% pure MCT oil from coconuts. All other MCT oil powders will add fillers like corn fiber, sunflower lecithin, maltodextrin, and sodium caseinate to cut costs. And all of these things are blood sugar spiking ingredients, which does anything but help us stay in ketosis. Use the coupon code HEALTHFUL, all in caps, for 15% off Perfect Keto MCT Oil Powder at healthfulpursuit.com slash MCT. Unsure of the link? Simply check out the show notes of today's episode to get all of the details. If you have an idea for a podcast episode or want to submit praise over and above the review, which you can leave by going to healthful pursuit.com forward slash review. You can reach me by emailing info at keto I got three exciting announcements today and they're awesome. The first one is that the podcast is turning one this week. Our first episode of the keto diet podcast premiered on October 1st, 2016. And since then we've covered 
so many awesome topics with so many amazing guests from all things keto to all things fasting, regulating your hormones to detoxifying and healing, building a healthy relationship with yourself and food to following through on your goals, carb ups to fat, fear, and so much more. What a year, right? So how should we celebrate? I think we should definitely do a giveaway. So our second announcement is that we are doing a mega giveaway with some of our favorite brands. This includes Perfect Keto and Thrive Market. So when you review the podcast, all you got to do is go to iTunes, leave a review, leave a star rating, be honest. And then email info at ketodietpodcast.com with a screenshot of your review and you'll be entered to win one of our two prize packs. So the first one is from Perfect Keto. The prize pack includes one Perfect Keto base chocolate sea salt and that's your exogenous ketones and then one MCT oil powder container as well as one keto collagen. The giveaway is open to US and Canada and the second prize pack is from Thrive Market which will provide you with a one-year membership and a starter kit of your choice. Now the starter kit has to be less than $50 but there are a lot to choose from and I think you're gonna love it. So when you leave a review for the podcast or if you already have, go ahead and take a screenshot of that, send Send us an email, we'll enter you to win, and the winner will be randomly drawn on October 10th, and we will contact you, and once we've confirmed all of your information, we will announce the winners on Instagram Live. So we will choose two winners randomly, it's going to be exciting. And the third announcement is that we have some awesome, exciting things happening. I've spent the summer, sadly, not relaxing. I don't know if I have the ability to relax, I don't think I do. I spent the entire summer working on something really awesome and I think you're going to love it. So that's going to be coming out pretty soon. So again, thank you so, so much for listening to the podcast. None of this stuff would be happening if it weren't for you. And I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to sit with me and learn about keto things and also telling me what we should put on the show. So I really, really appreciate it. Our guest today, her name is Amy Berger, MSCNSNTP, and is a USAF veteran, certified nutrition specialist and nutritional therapy practitioner who specializes in using low carbohydrate nutrition to help people claim their vitality through eating delicious foods and showing them that getting and staying well doesn't require starvation, deprivation, or living at the gym. Her motto is real people need real food. She blogs at trueitnutrition.com where she writes about a wide range of health and nutrition related topics such as insulin, metabolism, weight loss, thyroid function, and so much more. She's the author of the book, The Alzheimer's Antidote, Using a Low-Carb, High-Fat Diet to Fight Alzheimer's Disease, Memory Loss, and Cognitive Decline. We covered a lot of ground today all about dementia, Alzheimer's, and a bunch of different brain health things. So without further ado, let's cut over to this interview. Hey, Amy, how's it going today? Hey, I'm good. How are you? I'm fabulous. I'm great. For listeners that may not be familiar with your work, why don't we start off by you telling us a little bit about you? Okay, well, I am a low-carb and keto slash a little bit of paleo-oriented nutritionist, and I am also a writer. Probably most of my work is writing in within the nutrition and health world, and um, I got into this like 
a lot of us do. You know, I tried to help myself and I tried to help myself by doing the things I thought would help, like a, a low fat diet, lots and lots of exercise. I've run a couple of marathons and um, the weight just did not budge. And, and no matter how hard I worked, no matter what I did, the weight wouldn't budge. And I got tired of looking at friends who ate terribly and never exercised and looked better than I did. And um, I stumbled upon the Atkins book uh, several years ago, and I, I never looked back. It, it made sense as to why and how, you know, lowering the carbohydrate in your diet can work. And, and it explained why nothing I had tried before had worked. I, I had always eaten a lot of carbohydrate. But so my my place in all this started with weight loss. But of course, over the years, I've um, expanded my my interest in this, you know, this way of eating is effective for so many things. Weight loss is, is actually one of the least impressive things that it does, I think. And um, yeah, now I just try to share what I've learned with other people. That's exciting. And at what point did you shift from being very weight loss focused to being, whoa, actually, there's a lot of health benefits to this as well? That's a good question. It's been it's been a couple of years for sure already. I mean, you know, I started eating this way. Oh, I don't even know when it was. It was a long time ago. I think it's hard to say when it morphed. I don't know. It, it did take a couple of years. You know, at first, it was really just my own personal interest doing this as not even as a hobby. It was just really to lose weight. And then as I started reading more and more books, and, and even, you know, early on, kind of looking at some of the scientific papers, the, the ones that I could understand anyway, and reading, of course, you know, Gary Taubes' book, Good Calories, Bad Calories was a was a real eye opener for me, probably back in around 2008 when I already knew that this diet was very good for weight loss and, you know, a couple of other, of obviously diabetes and stuff like that. But then to learn that there's a role for this in heart disease and, you know, arthritis and, and like, a, you know, my book, Alzheimer's, there's so many things. Now it's, um, yeah, weight, weight loss is, is just such a tiny, tiny piece of, of what this is capable of. And how did you hone in on Alzheimer's and why has that been so important to you in your work? Oddly enough, I have no family history of it, so I didn't have that much of a real personal stake in it. You know, I, I have a family history of type 2 diabetes, obesity, and cancer, but uh, no Alzheimer's because we, we have enough going on. We didn't need Alzheimer's on top of that. But I actually, I just mentioned good calories, bad calories, and that was the first place I had ever come across a connection between glucose, insulin, and Alzheimer's disease. And when I first read that, it was really interesting because I'd never heard of it, but not having a family history, it wasn't that big a deal. It was kind of like, oh, that's interesting. You know, maybe I'll look at that some other time. And it was about, I don't know, four years later when I was getting a master's in nutrition and I had to pick a thesis topic to research. And I did a literature review, in, you know, instead of doing like an original experiment. And when I had to pick a topic, I said to myself, what is something that hasn't already been written about a million times and something that I could learn something and something that I would be fascinated enough and that there would be enough research on that I could actually write a thesis on it. And I told myself, you know, let me look at that Alzheimer's thing and see if there is enough research on that. And when I started looking, Leanne, I almost fell over, like fell out of my chair. I couldn't believe how much research there was on this. It was literally hiding in plain sight, like they say. I mean, it's everywhere. You can't, you can't look for information on Alzheimer's and not come across this connection. And it was shocking to me that nobody was talking about it. And, and this was potentially life-saving, life-changing information. And it was all over the medical journals. It was all over the research. But nobody was telling 
the patients. Nobody was telling the caregivers. Nobody was telling the people that needed this the most. I mean, that's that's pretty much why I wrote my book, basically as um, a way to bring this really, really important you know, information and these findings to the people that, that need them and to, to actually implement them in their lives. Yeah, that's huge. I had a grandfather that had Alzheimer's and just thinking back to all of the food that they fed him and the candies he had in his room. And we do the Alzheimer's run every year uh, just to support that. And, and a lot of money is raised. And when we sit down for meals after the Alzheimer's run, it's filled with carbohydrates to the point where there are no keto options. Like usually there's keto options. You can kind of piece things together, but at the Alzheimer's run, there is not. And it just blows me away. <laughs> it's like it's terrible. And it's the same thing as like when they have bake sales to raise money for, you know, type two diabetes, let's have a cupcake sale. It's ridiculous. Like, and I refuse to believe that the people, you know, eyeball deep in this, the people leading these sort of fundraising organizations, and even some of the medical organizations for Alzheimer's, and I refuse to believe that they don't know about the connection between insulin and glucose and Alzheimer's, that they're not e at least aware of it. It's, it's really unfortunate. And, and, you know, Alzheimer's patients, especially as the disease progresses, they actually really, really crave sweets, even, even more than usual. I don't know if you found that with your grandfather or not, but I feel like there's a reason they want to placate these people with sugar because it's what they want. But it's, in my opinion, and the research seems to suggest it's, it's contributing directly to the, to the pathology. More on my interview with Amy Berger after this message from one of our podcast partners. If you're not familiar with Paleo Valley, they make two of my very favorite things. The first, 100% grass-fed and finished fermented beef sticks. Each stick contains 1 billion probiotic CFUs to benefit the health of your gut and the strength of your immune system. Their gut-friendly sticks are gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, GMO-free, freaky chemical, additive dye, and preservative-free, as well as being 100% free from carbs and sugar. The second, a whole food-based, ultra-primal, super-nourishing organ complex. It's a mega-nutrient-dense superfood supplement. The nutrients in just one daily dose read like the best multivitamin out there, and it's a whole food. Organ Complex is a combination of beef liver, heart, brain, and kidney, all sourced from 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef organs, which are non-GMO and never given antibiotics, steroids, hormones, or grain. The capsules are 100% pure with no fillers or flow agents, gluten, grain, soy, or dairy. Now you can shop all things Paleo Valley, load up your cart, and apply a sweet coupon code on everything in your cart. Take advantage of this offer by going to paleovalley.com slash keto20. Fill up your cart and enter the coupon code KETO20, that's K-E-T-O-2-0, at checkout to apply a 20% off discount on your entire purchase. Unsure of the link? Simply check out the show notes of today's episode to get all the details. So let's go through a little bit because we've chatted, you've said it a couple times, the connection between glucose, insulin, and Alzheimer's. Before we get going with like keto and dementia and Alzheimer's, could you mind just going through what that connection is and how that works? Yeah. So um, Alzheimer's disease is regularly referred to all over the medical research as type 3 diabetes or diabetes of the brain. And that comes mainly from the issue that 
the Alzheimer's brain has lost the ability to get enough energy from glucose. And um, we're not really sure exactly why that's happening. There's a lot of reasons why it could be happening. But the bottom line is that's the fundamental problem in this condition is the brain cells are almost like starving to death because they've lost the ability to use glucose for fuel. And one of the biggest risk factors for this illness is chronic hyperinsulinemia you know, or insulin resistance, basically, there's a reason type two diabetics have a much higher risk for it. And, um, you know, regard there are some genetic factors that feed into it and other things. But regardless of genetics, even regardless of family history, having chronically high insulin is a huge risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. So there's something going on with the brain being impaired in its ability to metabolize glucose, basically. And which came first, the chicken or the egg? Like, is it because they eat a lot of carbohydrates that Alzheimer's may be more prevalent? Or is it when they get Alzheimer's, they crave more carbohydrates because their brain is thinking more carbs, let's try to make this work? Do you that's, know? That's the million dollar question. And I don't even know that we have the answer to it. I don't think they've done enough prospective studies with diet, at least, to say, okay, is it the people who eat the most carbohydrate who get more, you know, Alzheimer's more often, or is it something else? Because, you know, carbohydrate isn't the only thing that affects insulin levels. But I, th and, and, you know, even dietary carbohydrate is not the only thing that affects blood sugar. I mean, sleep feeds into it, stress levels feed into it. I think, you know, based on what I've seen, that not necessarily a very high carb intake per se, but a high carb intake along with maybe poor glucoregulation overall, whether that's from not getting enough physical activity or being stressed out or not sleeping enough, and possibly the combination of excess sugar with some of these like vegetable oils that we've all been eating for all these years that are turning out to not be so good for us and um, possibly couple that with nutrient insufficiencies, things like B12, things like omega-3 fats, it's the perfect storm. It's this like coming together of multiple things that I think are contributing to the loss of the ability of the brain to use glucose. I think a high carb, high sugar diet is probably the biggest factor, but I think that alone is probably not enough to cause this. Mm, I'm happy that you mentioned too, like the stress, sleep patterns, physical activity, those pieces that can also influence insulin quite significantly. Exactly. I mean, all of those things affect insulin sensitivity. And I think that's why those are all potential, you know, potential factors feeding into this. And so before we get into brain health and quantifying things, why don't we chat a little bit about the treatment strategy that you've put in your book and chat a little bit about your book too. All right. Where do you want to start anywhere in particular? You just run with it. What's your book All about right. and what's the treatment strategy that you put in your book? Okay, well, I'm, I'm not a doctor, so I hesitate to use the word treatment, but um, I, I call it a, a nutritional intervention. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, they, you know, we just are, we nutritionists, we have to be so careful with that. So being that the fundamental problem in this condition is that the brain is not able to get enough energy from glucose and these neurons basically atrophy. And, and you can see this on brain scans. You can actually see the, the volume of the brain shrinking as these cells start to shrivel up. You know, I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but that's basically what's happening. Being that that's the case, is there some workaround? Is there some other fuel that maybe we could use to nourish these starving neurons? And as you know, as some of your listeners probably know, ketones are an excellent fuel for the brain. And the odd thing in Alzheimer's, 
is even though these cells are not able to use a lot of glucose, they can use ketones. They've, they've shown this not only in animal models, but in humans with Alzheimer's disease. When you get these people's ketone levels elevated, whether it's via a ketogenic diet or with exogenous ketone supplements, when their ketone levels are higher, they do have improved cognition. They do have improved behavior. We know this works. Now, it's not a slam dunk. Not saying this is like an overnight miracle cure for Alzheimer's. It is not. But, you know, being that every single pharmaceutical drug developed for this condition has been a total failure, we've got to do something else because none of these drugs address the fundamental underlying problem of this metabolism. Alzheimer's disease is a metabolic problem. And by metabolic, I mean it has to do with energy and the reason I, I prefer the ketogenic diet over the supplements, and we, we can talk about why, but I prefer the diet because when you get someone's ketone levels elevated by the exogenous ketones, it's very short-lived. Those things have, have a half-life, I think, of about an hour and a half, and then they start to go away. But if you have somebody on the diet where they're producing ketones themselves 24-7, even at a low level, that's giving you a much better baseline to start with that that person's that that brain is getting nourished is getting fueled all the time and I, there, there's a lot of other things to do, you know, like I, I mentioned earlier, B, B12 deficiency is rampant in, in, in not only in the elderly and in, in, in the whole population, but, but in older people especially. So there's certain specific foods that I recommend to be part of the diet. But the main, most powerful intervention I think you can do is to give these starving brain cells an, an alternate fuel. And not only that, you know, I think the beauty of, of the ketogenic approach for Alzheimer's is not only do ketones serve as an alternate fuel for these cells, but in reducing the total insulin load, the total carbohydrate load, we help resensitize the brain to the, uh, the insulin and the glucose that's already there. You know, they've done, they did a rat study. I don't know if they've replicated this in humans, but they've shown in rats that, you know, rats with, with the model of Alzheimer's disease, when their ketone levels are elevated, not only does the brain take up ketones very well, the uptake of glucose is better than, you know, rats with Alzheimer's not on a ketogenic diet. So it's almost as if like not only does the brain take up the ketones, but it also takes up glucose better. So it's a, like a win-win. And I just, there, there's a lot of other things that can improve the cognitive function, that can improve the nutritional status. But that to me is the single most important place to start. And for somebody listening out there who's who has a, a loved one with this disease or who's a caregiver, if you if this is the first time you're hearing this, if, if you've never heard of type three diabetes or you've never had, you know, been recommended to have your loved one's insulin level checked or their B12 B12 levels checked, that is a tragedy. Shame on the neurologist, shame on the doctor. I shouldn't have had to write this book. A doctor should have beaten me to this. You know, I wrote this because this book didn't exist yet and it needed to. Mary Newport is a physician who who wrote a book about her husband, Steve, who had dementia. But, you know, I think not a lot of people knew about it. I just think this this is staring us in the face and, and nobody's bringing it to the people that need it. Yeah, super frustrating. That was the same way that I felt with hormones and a ketogenic diet and how I was able to get my hormones back after eight years of having amenorrhea. And it just became so frustrating. Like, why is nobody talking about this? Why is nobody saying that fats are so important to our health? And I, I think you feel the same way with Alzheimer's of just feeling really frustrated. Um, so thank you for putting your work out there for people that need it most. It's really important work and seeing my grandfather 
deteriorates so quickly. And now looking back and thinking like, oh my gosh, if only we had insert thing that I've learned now, having read your book and been in the keto space for a while. Now, based on your research and what you found out there, do you think that a ketogenic diet could reverse Alzheimer's or are you just saying that it more like pauses it or kind of what's your thought on that? That's a really good question. I think it can go very far toward slowing the progression potentially halting the progression, I think there might be some degree of reversal possible. I think if somebody's in the very late stages, if someone has very advanced dementia or is very elderly, I wouldn't expect much of a turnaround. I think obviously the younger somebody is, the le- you know the more mild the disease, the more I would expect that person to actually recover rather than just making the decline more slow. And there's a doctor out there, Dale Bredesen, he's actually coming out with a book right about now, I think. We're, we're, we're recording at the end of August. I think today might actually be his release date. He's done some very small trials where they have reversed it. They have reversed dementia. Well, they've reversed kind of mild cognitive impairment, which is the precursor, and they've reversed early sort of mild, you know, early Alzheimer's. And they they measured on the brain scans, like I was mentioning earlier, that you can see the shrinkage of the brain, they have actually restored people's brain volume. I mean, it's amazing. And and his his program is not even a ketogenic diet. It's a, it's a multifactorial intervention. His diet is more of a Mediterranean, slightly higher fat, lower carb, but definitely not ketogenic. But I think Obviously, the earlier this is caught, the more likely it is that we can reverse it. And I, I do think some degree of reversal is possible. But, you know, like I said, I don't think I wouldn't expect a miraculous turnaround on somebody very old. But the thing with Alzheimer's disease is, you know, they used to call it old timers. They used to kind of joke and call it old timers disease. And that's really not the case anymore. We're not talking anymore about people in their 80s and their 90s. You know, somebody in their 80s or 90s, you almost expect some degree of cognitive decline just as an aging process. Like, I don't think that's abnormal to expect. But now we're talking about people in their 50s, people in their 60s. And even, you know, you can even see this working in in much younger people in their 20s and 30s. How many people complain about brain fog, brain fog, fuzzy thinking? You know, are those the very, very early stages? Is that already a sign to people that, that your brain is not doing so well on a lot of carbohydrate? You know, it could be. Yeah, definitely. And let's switch gears a little bit, you know, because a lot of people listening may not have Alzheimer's or know anyone who has Alzheimer's, but they're concerned about their overall brain health, more of a preventative measure. What tests would you recommend where somebody is mentally when it comes to their brain health? Are there certain labs or cognitive tests that they can do to kind of see how their brain is? Yeah, I, there there are some sort of diagnostic tests for Alzheimer's that I, I don't, you know, obviously I wouldn't recommend that for somebody who's young and doesn't really have any issues. I would keep more of an eye on the metabolic markers because those are going to go south, so to speak, long before you start having issues. Like, they have done studies on on people at risk for Alzheimer's, wh- whether it's for a genetic reason or a family history, people at risk for this condition, as young as their 30s and 40s, they can already detect the 
decline in the brain's glucose metabolism. Now, that's something you do that via a PET scan. It's kind of like an advanced expensive test. People can get that done if they want to. They actually inject you with a form of glucose that they can measure how much the brain takes it up. And they can already see that it's decreased in certain people. That's really not a standard test to have done. And I don't think it's all that necessary. I think probably the single most important test anyone can have done not just for Alzheimer's, almost for any metabolic condition, anything having to do with with insulin resistance is a fasting insulin test. If your fasting insulin is high, you already know something is out of whack. And if if your fasting insulin level is not high, there's another more advanced test that you can, you know, test your insulin after eating or after eating, you know, it's, it's like an oral glucose tolerance test, except instead of only testing your blood glucose levels, they test your insulin levels. So it might be that your fasting level is normal, but your insulin is going really high every time you eat. And so it's staying high most of the day, but just by the time you wake up in the morning, it comes back to normal. So I honestly think an insulin test is really one of the most important things. And then you can look at fasting glucose. You can look at A1C. The thing is, though, you know, we call this type 3 diabetes, but you don't have to be a type 2 diabetic to get Alzheimer's. You don't, you know, not everyone with Alzheimer's is type 2 diabetic. And I think it's because everyone's only ever looking at glucose. You know, no one's ever looking at insulin. And I, I honestly, truly think if we would add fasting insulin to routine blood work, the way there's, you know, glucose and there's your blood pressure and your triglycerides, like this is standard blood work that you get done in a normal checkup. If they would add insulin, it would be a total game changer. That's really interesting. And are there, you know, perhaps maybe somebody's not able to afford blood testing and things like that. Are there certain maybe symptoms that people could watch for that maybe would trigger concern when it comes to brain health? Like perhaps brain fog or having a hard time remembering people's names or just little things that you think, oh, you know, I've just had a hard day or I didn't drink my coffee in the morning when really it's actually something you should probably look into? Yeah, that's a good question because I think it's very subjective. You know, like I said, there are diagnostic tests that you can do that kind of test cognitive function, but I think those are really done after someone is already suspecting that they have an issue. So I think People know themselves, you know, they know when something is worse than normal and worse than it's been in the past. And so I think in the early stages, a lot of people report, like you said, whether it's brain fog, um, not remembering things as easily, confusing words, you know, using the wrong word for something or not remembering a word for something at all, you know, pointing to something but not remembering what the name of it is, Like, like any object, a computer, a spoon, a fork, you know, you just forget the word. People that do a lot of math in their professions, like an accountant or something like that, sometimes they report that they're just not able to calculate as quickly in their head. So it's it's subtle, it's little things, but I think, you know, and we all have senior moments, you know, even a 20-year-old person will have a quote-unquote senior moment where you walk into a room and you forget why you went there. A little bit of that now and then is normal, we all get it, but when it does start, you know, becoming a problem and when it's interfering with your, you know, with your work or even with your 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 social life, I think it's it, it is subjective, though, which is kind of unfortunate. But I think people people know when something is is getting a little more severe. More on my interview with Amy Berger after this message from one of our podcast partners. I love being Canadian, the home of the true north, strong and free. But gosh, I am jealous that y'all in the U.S 
get access to Thrive Market. For all my pals south of the border, my friends at Thrive Market are offering you 35% off your first box of groceries plus free shipping and a 30-day trial. Imagine spending only $9.95 as opposed to $20.99 on raw cacao powder or $15.65 as opposed to $24.99 on MCT oil. So on top of their everyday wholesale prices, the extra 35% off your first box of groceries plus free shipping is going to transform a regular $100 grocery run into a $50 to $75 Thrive Market order for the same amount of things. Go to thrivemarket.com HP to get your instant 35% off. Available to new Thrive Market customers only. If you're unsure of the link, simply check out the show notes of today's episode to get all the details. And what particular nutrients besides healthy fats, because keto equals healthy fats? Well, not always. Maybe we should actually talk about the dangers of the wrong fats on keto before we even get into particular nutrients. Because I know that I've seen multiple times, and I'm sure you see this as well, people are like, yeah, yeah, I'm keto. And you look at the types of fats they're eating and you're like, uh, no, you should probably change things. So can we chat a little bit about unhealthy fats and their effect on brain health, perhaps? Sure. I think, to be honest, eating a ketogenic diet with not so great fats is probably still better than not eating a ketogenic diet, you know, specifically for this condition. I'm not saying like everyone should go out there and eat whatever kind of fat they want. But I think the state of ketosis, however it's achieved, is so therapeutic for this that, you know, somebody shouldn't worry that much about the fat they're eating at first. You know, over time, they might get more concerned about it. And if they are concerned about it, of course, yes, I think obviously the more stable fats we like the, the 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 less processing that has to be done to extract a fat and produce it probably the better so we're talking about the really good animal fats like tallow lard especially if you can get it from properly raised animals grass fed animals you know pastured if you can't afford that that's okay. These fats are still okay for you. You know, regular supermarket bacon is is still better than a jug of soybean oil. So um, the fats that we would want to avoid are, like we mentioned earlier, mostly the vegetable oils, you know, a, a big jug of corn oil or soybean oil, cottonseed oil, you know, all of these oils that are used in processed foods, and they are actually fairly rancid. You know, the the, te- the technology required to extract all of this oil from these seeds and these grains is pretty intense. And these oils are subjected to very high temperatures, very high pressures, and they're just, they're very damaged by the time they're even bottled, let alone when we bring them home and put them in a frying pan and then eat them. And the reason this is, pro- is a problem is, you know, the brain is literally built out of fat. It is largely built out of fat and cholesterol. And if you if you don't have the right building blocks, then literally your brain is not going to work properly. You're going to have problems. You know, if if the fats in the cell membranes of these neurons are not, you know, constructed correctly, then you you're going you know, it's going to impact your cognition. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for that. And so now that we have that as a base layer. Should oh, I should, I should really quick though, because I didn't, yeah. I, I think I only mentioned animal fats. It's not just animal fats, you know, co- like coconut oil is fabulous for Alzheimer's, of course, because the, the medium chain triglycerides convert so easily to ketones, which is great. But, you know, olive oil is fine, avocado oil, you know, other, 
other fats like that that are more more monounsaturated. So even even all these healthy fats and foods like avocados and um, you know small amounts of nuts and seeds these these things are fine. I just you know what we want to avoid is like going to the store and buying that gallon jug of clear you know quote unquote vegetable oil and it's all soybean. Yeah, good point. Totally. Thank you for adding that. Now, are there specific nutrients besides the healthy fats that we should be paying attention to when we're eating a long term ketogenic diet to prevent neurodegeneration? Definitely. Yeah. I think I mentioned B12. B12 is huge for healthy cognition. There's something called myelin that if, if people are into health, they may have heard of myelin or the myelin sheath. It's It's a fatty substance that protects neurons. It sort of insulates them the way like these rubber, you know, wires insulate electrical cords. And um, myelin needs B12 to be synthesized. And so B12, not, not just deficiency, but even an insufficiency can cause all kinds of neurological problems, not just cognitive impairment. I mean, sometimes multiple sclerosis is actually a B12 deficiency is misdiagnosed as MS or, you know, some sort of like, like dyspraxia, like clumsiness, all types of weird things can come from B12 deficiency. And B12 is very, very high in a lot of the foods that we've been told to avoid because they're high in fat or cholesterol. Like, for example, red meat, liver, shellfish, egg yolks, all of these foods have a lot of B12. And these are precisely the foods our older folks have been warned against. Choline is another one. Choline is essential for a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine, which is really helpful for learning and memory processing. And choline, the number one dietary source of choline is egg yolks. So all of these egg white omelets and, you know, egg substitutes, they don't have the kind of choline that real egg yolks do. And of course, the, the omega-3 fats. I mean, the brain, I just said, it's, is largely built out of fat and cholesterol. I think I don't know if it's the predominant fat in the brain or not, but in general, omega-3, especially DHA, is so, so rich in the brain. And DHA is in, of course, it's in fatty seafood, but it's also in, um, it is in animal fat. And it'll be a little bit, a little bit higher in, in the grass-fed and pastured meats. But again, like, we've been cautioned against the very foods that contain the nutrients we need most. Yeah, definitely. And when it comes to ketones and a ketone range, what's the best range to be in when treating Alzheimer's or avoiding Alzheimer's? Or is there a range for ketones? Because you mentioned, you know, you don't necessarily recommend exogenous ketones because they um, are short lived. And I agree with you. I think that they can be a good supplement if you're already on a ketogenic diet and you need a boost. But do you find that there's a specific special number when it comes to ketones? and dementia. Yeah, and let me, um, I'll get to that in one sec. I, if I can real quick about the exogenous ketones, yes, since please. you just mentioned it, I think they have their time and place. I don't think they're a weight loss tool. I don't think they're going to help you manage your blood sugar much if you're, if you're a type two diabetic. I do think they can be extremely helpful for people with Alzheimer's, especially if it's somebody who is in, is in a severe stage of this disease or they're very elderly and you're not going to get them to adopt a ketogenic diet. I mean, let's face it, somebody who's 85 and has dementia is not going to give up their morning you know, English muffin and jelly and orange juice for eggs cooked in coconut oil. So for those people, I absolutely think the exogenous ketones can be a godsend, but the exogenous ketones will do nothing to change 
the fundamental problem, which I think the actual diet does. The diet does reduce the glucose load. It does reduce the, the insulin load. You know, it's anti-inflammatory. It does all these other things that the all the exogenous ketones do is provide the neurons with fuel in the short term, which is great. I mean, I don't want to discount the importance of that, but they do nothing to address the underlying problem. Now, with regard to the ketone levels, it's hard to say because I think people respond differently. You know, some one person with dementia might have great results with ketones at, you know, 0.8 or 1.2. Someone else might not respond until their ketones are at 2.5. You know, we're talking like blood levels of beta hydroxybutyrate for people listening. So I think it varies. I think you kind of have to just experiment. Like if you're going to help a loved one implement this diet, you just have to see you have to see what happens. And I don't even think measuring is required. You know, you can do it if you want, but measuring the blood is, it gets pretty expensive. It's not cheap to measure blood ketones. You can measure the urine just to monitor compliance, just to see whether the person is actually in ketosis, you know, especially during the first couple of weeks. Those urine strips are, I think they are pretty reliable, at least in the early stages of whether someone's actually in ketosis or not. But I just think you'll see the change. You know, you'll see whether the person's behavior is changing, whether their their cognition is better, whether they're interacting a little differently with people. Like you'll notice the difference. I think the the benefit of measuring the ketones if you can is that you can then see is my husband's cognition, is my wife or my grandmother's cognition better when the ketone levels are at a certain threshold because otherwise you're just short of shooting in the dark. Yes. I love everything you just said, and I agree with you. (laughs) Okay, so let's chat a little bit about treatment measures and such. So do you need to be in a constant state of ketosis in order to cash in on the brain benefits, or is low-carb, high-fat enough? I know that you mentioned, you know, the ketones being really beneficial when you have Alzheimer's, but if somebody's eating low-carb, high-fat, perhaps not testing, and, you know, maybe they're in registering a little bit of ketones here or there. Maybe they dip out of ketosis and they're back in it. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, I love talking about this topic. Thank you for asking. Because um, I think that if somebody has dementia, if they are already in the disease process, it probably is helpful and important to stay in some degree of ketosis all the time. For people that are trying to prevent it, you know, I think you, you said earlier, the type of diet or the type of intervention that we think would reverse a disease process is not necessarily required to prevent it from happening in the first place. And I compare it to like, a bug bomb. Like if you have an insect infestation in your house, you might call the exterminator and they come and they set off a bug bomb and that takes care of the problem. But that doesn't mean you have to have an exterminator come set off this poisonous bomb in your house to prevent the infestation in the first place. You know, you have much more low level, simple interventions. You could like not leave food out, don't leave the windows open. So with regard to brain health, no, I, I don't think ketosis is required at all times to prevent this from happening. I think if somebody enjoys a very strict ketogenic diet and wants to do it all the time, they can. I just don't think they have to. I think low carb, high fat is probably a great way to go. And really, truly, something more like paleo that's not even low carb by definition, but is full of whole unprocessed, healthy foods, the carbohydrates that are there are, you know, starchier vegetables, fruit. We're not talking about Pop-Tarts and and sugary breakfast cereal. I think for some people, that's enough. I I don't think 
carbohydrate restriction per se is required. What is required is managing your blood glucose and insulin, keeping those things low. And some people can do that while eating upwards of, you know, 100 to 200 grams of carbohydrate a day, depending on how active they are, depending on other factors. And as much as I love the ketogenic diet and realize the importance of low carb, high fat, I don't think that we can discount just, I I guess you would call it epidemiological evidence where you look at different populations around the world that age gracefully and with all their cognitive faculties intact. And they're not on ketogenic diets. You know, whether you want to talk about the blue zones or whatever they call it, like these people eat beans, they eat bread, they eat fruit, you know, but what they don't eat is a lot of the the modern junk that, that most Americans are frankly living on all day long. So yes, I think some amount of carbohydrate restriction is probably really helpful. But people differ in the amount they have to restrict. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that as well. And I think it really comes down to balance and feasibility. I mean, I've met people that say, you know, I tried the ketogenic diet and I just went too hard and like, screw it, I'm just going to go back to what I was eating. And it's really like, okay, well, let's look at more of the benefits of this lifestyle overall. And I too agree with you that although a ketogenic diet is very, 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 very healing and there's a lot of benefits to it, um, if you're working on more of a preventative measure and lifelong strategy, it's beneficial to, you know, set it up as a lifelong strategy and not get too overwhelmed with all of the rules that come with the standard ketogenic protocol. Because myself too, I know that when I first got started with keto and I went too strict, it was actually quite detrimental to my health because I was pushing myself too hard and forcing myself to fast and counting calories and macros. And it just got a lot for me. So I'm happy that you mentioned, you know, creating that balance and support for your body overall. Yeah. And I I think, you know, for people looking for prevention, I, I am speculating, we don't have proof of this, but I would imagine that if your diet is good most of the time, and I can't give numbers, like I know if people like Mark Sisson, you know, he says 80-20, I can't really give numbers. But if you eat well and eat relatively low carb most of the time, then, you know, once a month, every six or eight weeks, if you go to your favorite restaurant and go hog wild on nachos and beer or, you know, what a cheesecake, whatever the item is, that is not what is killing us. You know, what's killing us now is the constant influx. At breakfast, we have cereal and orange juice and toast with margarine. And then two hours later, we're snacking on crackers. And then an hour later, we're having a sandwich and chips for lunch. Three hours later, you know, we're having that that afternoon slump at work and we have a granola bar. Then we're home for dinner. We have pasta and breadsticks. I mean, it's this endless onslaught all day long of sugar and starch. That, I think, is what's doing this, you know, in combination with rancid fats and not enough sleep and all the other factors. But I think really, there is room for the occasional indulgence. Like, I just don't think I don't know, you know, it's not it's not an either or like you you were saying, you know, you had friends who said, Oh, you know, I, I tried the ketogenic diet, but it just it was too much. And I just went back to my normal diet. It's not binary, like you either eat ketogenic all the time, or you eat garbage, you know, there's, there's something in between that's a healthy, wholesome diet. Yes, I couldn't agree with you more. And when it comes to like assuming, you know, many, many of the people listening right now are women, they're ketogenic, they probably don't have Alzheimer's, maybe they're just concerned about their brain health. And they're thinking, like, you know, which is better? I know that we just finished a conversation on, you know, balance and, you know, eat intuitively to your ketogenic needs and go out, you know, to restaurants, you know, once a month or whatever you deem necessary. 
We chat a little bit about plant versus animal fat. I think you already answered this, but let's just reiterate. Is there, you know, a better fat for brain health, uh, plant versus animal? Are they kind of just the same when it comes to brain health benefits? That's a good question. I, I'm not sure that I know a scientific answer. I, I think, you know, like we said, coconut oil is just fabulous, fabulous for the brain. But you can't live on coconut oil alone. You know, there's other fats in the foods that we eat. I certainly think the stable animal fats are great. You know, we have what, what they call the politically correct fats, which is like salmon and avocado and olive oil, you know, even even the people that used to fear fat, like in the 1980s, have kind of come around to the fact those fats are okay. But there's still this big stigma around animal fat. And there shouldn't be, you know, it, it's, we, we don't have time to get into this, but it's almost like a cultural problem that, that it's unladylike to eat a steak, or it's unfeminine to eat a fatty pork chop. And that that kind of thinking has got to go, ladies, like, don't be afraid of red meat. Don't be afraid of egg yolks, you know, don't don't let anyone pressure you into getting that egg white omelet. So I do think, I think animal fats are great for the brain. Now, somebody I, I have read that polyunsaturated fats, which is, you know, predominantly in some of the more plant oils, except, you know, obviously, coconut oil and is mostly saturated and olive oil is mostly monounsaturated, but something like flaxseed oil or some other un polyunsaturated oil are more ketogenic. And I haven't, I haven't really seen the science on it. I haven't looked at it. I don't know if that's true. So for someone specifically looking to get into a higher level of ketosis, those oils might like, like plant fats might better. I'm just not sure. I just, I think the animal fats are preferred and then, and then the oils, the plant oils that are mostly saturated and mono. So like, you know, the coconut oil, the avocado, the olive oil. Awesome. Cool. And is there something else, you know, assuming that a lot of the people listening are ketogenic other than the fat intake, we chatted about stress and sleep quality, physical activity, avoiding vegetable oils. Is there anything else that the ketogenic woman could do on a daily basis or monthly basis to ensure proper brain health? I kind of want to emphasize the sleep because sleep is so important for brain health. You know, there's a reason you don't feel so well when you're just not getting enough sleep. It's especially important for Alzheimer's because when we sleep, some of the the sort of toxins, and I, I hate that word, that's such a charged word, but some of the like metabolic waste products that build up in the brain are more effectively cleared while we sleep than when we're awake. So if you're quote unquote supposed to be asleep for like, you know, eight hours, six to eight hours, and you're only sleeping five hours, your brain doesn't have as much opportunity to clear these metabolic wastes. And I mean, there's other reasons why sleep affects Alzheimer's too, but that's one of the big ones that these some of these toxic buildup products are, are more effectively swept away when we sleep. But for the ketogenic people specifically, and, and the ketogenic women maybe more so than, than the men, don't be afraid of protein. You know, unfortunately, the ketogenic world, we, we've sort of scared people away from consuming even adequate protein because everybody's so concerned about reaching a certain level of ketosis or they build their diets around ratios, right? 80% fat, 10% protein, 10% carbs, 5% carbs. And I honestly think there's a lot of women in the ketogenic space under eating protein, and the protein is not, it's not as important for the sake of the cognitive function and brain health, but for your overall health. And even for insulin sensitivity, you know, you can't build muscle without eating adequate protein and you can't hang on to your muscle without adequate protein. And having muscle mass on you 
and using it is a really, really great way to stay insulin sensitive. Yes. Oh my gosh. You are the first guest I've had on the show so far where I'm like, yes to the protein conversation, because I can't tell you how many people I meet and they're like, yeah, well, a ketogenic diet is low protein. I'm like, or the whole gluconeogenic conversation. And although yes, totally. If you eat oodles of protein, you'll probably need to be concerned with your protein intake and glucose regulation, but we're talking like a lot, a lot. And this is a demand driven state. It's not something like, Oh, all of a sudden the pro the burger that you ate turns into glucose and now you're not in ketosis anymore. So I think there's a lot of fear mongering in the ketogenic space about protein. And yes, I agree with you. Yeah, thank you. There, there is a ton oh. of fear mongering. I wrote, I wrote a super long blog post about this. Maybe we can put it in the show notes or something. I wrote a blog post explaining gluconeogenesis to try to inject some calmness into this because I, I do get a lot of women who have built their diet around those ratios. And when it comes to protein, the absolute amount of protein, the absolute number of grams, is way more important than the ratio because I get women that are eating 50 grams of protein a day, and that is simply not enough. The type of so we can just frame this by saying the type of diet and the macronutrient breakdown of the diet is different depending on what the goal is. If somebody has epilepsy, if somebody has cancer, if somebody has Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, it's very different from someone who's healthy and wants to stay healthy, and it's very different from someone whose goal is fat loss. They can both be low carb, they can both be ketogenic, but it's a it's a different uh, it's a different numbers game. Yes. Amazing. Okay. Last question, getting into a little bit more of the science behind things. What are the options for somebody with existing genetic predisposition for Alzheimer's, specifically if they have the APEO E4 genes, conflicting dietary recommendations for somebody who is at risk for Alzheimer's versus diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So if you have a genetic predisposition rather for Alzheimer's, Is there something else you need to be doing? I know that I have this as well. What should one do if they, if their genes say you might get Alzheimer's? I think you, Leanne, are probably already doing everything I would recommend to do, (laughs) which um, the number one thing would be a low carb diet. That APOE4 gene is right now the, the number one most powerful genetic risk factor we know of for this condition. But It's not a a death sentence. It doesn't cause Alzheimer's disease. It makes you more susceptible. It's a risk factor. But not everybody who has two copies of this gene develops Alzheimer's. And many, many people with Alzheimer's do not carry even one copy of this gene. So um, it really doesn't cause Alzheimer's. But yes, it does make you more at risk. And I think there's some speculation about this gene. This gene seems to have been formed or forged sort of among hunter-gatherer peoples and it was selected against in populations that have a longer history of a grain-based agriculture. So it's very low in like East Asia, Southern Europe, Central America. So places where they were eating rice and wheat and corn respectively have a much lower incidence of this gene. So what that means is the people that have this gene are sort of the least suited for a diet that's high in grain. I, I, I can't say high in total carbohydrate, but high in grain and sugar, most likely. So I think the number one thing for the E4s is a low carb diet. Some people speculate about dairy for them, like again, because this is sort of an older genotype, so to speak, they really don't do well with dairy. I guess a lot of the E4s find that if they eat a lot of saturated fat, 
their lipids go crazy, the cholesterol goes crazy, everything kind of goes crazy, and, and they have a much higher risk for cardiovascular disease. I think the jury's out on that because I don't know, you know, having a high cholesterol by itself is really not indicative of, of heart health. So it's hard to say. I think I think the number one thing they can do is is a low carb diet and, and maybe other things to, you know, help insulin sensitivity. But that's really not any different from what I would recommend for anyone else. So some of the E4s, they do prefer to go much lower in saturated fat and much higher in omega-3. So they, they would get like most of their protein from seafood rather than even from, you know, like a pastured good ruminant animal. Yeah, I'm really happy that you mentioned the cholesterol piece because as somebody who has this predisposition and who tests their blood like crazy, I find that when my, actually when my cholesterol is higher, I'm very in tune with my body. I find that when my cholesterol is higher, my brain feels better. I don't know how else to explain it other than, you know, I do have those problems where I look in an item and I can't remember the name of it or I use wrong words in wrong places. And I find that when my cholesterol is higher and I'm eating more saturated fat, those instances go away or reduced quite significantly. So that's really interesting to me that you mentioned that. But yeah, I, I agree with you on all those fronts and it's just something that you need to be mindful of. And I think it's also, you know, some people don't like to test for those things because they think it's a death sentence, but I just like to know so I can, you know, bend and flex now as opposed to dealing with a hot mess later. So, right. But yeah. that, but that's really cool that you've made that connection that you, you find when your cholesterol is higher, you feel better because people really are terrified of cholesterol and that's, that's a whole other topic, but, um, people get really, really scared. And I, I mean, we can't emphasize it enough. You know, a high cholesterol by itself tells you absolutely nothing about the health of your heart or your blood vessels. Absolutely nothing. Agreed. And where can people find you if they want to learn more about all the things you're up to? My website is Tuit Nutrition. It's T-U-I-T nutrition.com. I'm very active on Twitter. My handle is Tuit Nutrition. And um, I'm based out of the Northern Virginia area, kind of near DC, but I, I do work with clients all over the place uh, on the phone and Skype. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Amy. I think we could have talked for a billion hours about this kind of stuff. I really like it. And thanks for doing the work that you do out in the world. We all really appreciate it. I could say the same to you, Leanne. Thank you. Amazing. And the show notes and full transcript for today's episode can be found at healthfulpursuit.com forward slash podcast forward slash E52. And that does it for another episode of the Keto Diet Podcast. Thanks for listening in. You can follow me on Instagram by searching Healthful Pursuit, where you'll find daily keto eats and other fun things. And check out all of my keto supportive programs, bundles, guides, and other cool things over at healthfulpursuit.com forward slash shop. And I'll see you next Sunday. Bye.